thank you so much to, I'm going to say Natalie and the three families, uh, Frangarkas, Grooms and the Quicks. Thank you so much for leading us in, in worship this morning. If you have your Bibles, please uh, keep them open in John chapter 1 or open them to John chapter 1. Uh, for this Christmas season, we're going to be in this first chapter or the, what's called the prologue of John as we prepare our way for Christmas. Uh, this is without a doubt one of my favorite passages in all of scriptures. In fact, a large part of my master's was focused on this particular passage. So if I geek out this morning, uh, understand and uh, please forgive. Imagine with me that you're at your favorite shopping center, you're there to buy your Christmas gifts. I'm sure you all are in that frantic season of life now. And you're there and you see a large commotion. You see chaos erupt. A large peep, people, a large group of people have gathered and chaos has erupted. Some people are fighting, throwing each other over the tables. Others are lying on the floor lifelessly. Others are sobbing and crying incessantly. Others are shouting out in anger. It's just a mess. And you think to yourself, this is getting out of hand. Isn't someone going to do something? And so you turn to the person next to you, being quite inquisitive. You ask the person, what's going to happen? What's gonna, who's going to do something? And this person realizing that you're not in the no tells you, oh no, don't worry, they're just filming a movie. Don't worry about that. Now that kind of information helps a lot, right? It helps you see that scenario, that chaos, a whole lot differently. It changes your perception of the event, your understanding of what's going on. I might suggest to you that is what John gives us here. He gives us a behind-the-scenes look, if you will, that ought to change our perception, that ought to change our understanding of what we see in this life, and particularly for this season, what we see in the Christmas season. See, John gives us a behind-the-scenes look at Jesus that helps us see beyond all the clutter, all the distraction, all the trouble of life, and helps us see that God indeed is in control even of what seems like chaos. And so as we prepare ourselves for Christmas this year, I want us to consider in this series the Christ behind Christmas. And as I said, I'll be looking at the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And, and the section really breaks down easily for us into three sections according to three themes. And this morning, we're going to look at verse 1 to 3 at the word who creates. In the weeks ahead, we'll look at Jesus as the light and then Jesus as the sun. Uh, but let's consider this passage. I'm just going to read the first three verses again and then ask the Lord to help us as we consider His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Only so far in the reading of God's Word may you reform our lives to its truth. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning as needy people, and we ask, dear Lord, as the psalmist asked, we ask that you'd unfold your word to our hearts, that you'd give light, that your word being unfolded is able to give us understanding. 
And so we pray, dear Lord, even this morning, open our mouths that we would come to pant after you, that we would long for your commandments. Turn to us, we ask, and be gracious, as is your way with those who love you. And so we confess our love for you this morning, and we pray, speak to us in Christ's name. Amen. Let me ask you a question. When was the last time you felt small? When was the last time you felt small? Kids, you don't need to answer. When was the last time you felt overwhelmed by wonder? Perhaps it was when you saw the mighty oceans for the first time. It's crashing waves. It's fierce winds. And you realize you're a small little grain of sand before this mighty body of water. Perhaps it was when you overlooked a great mountain range, when you saw the rolling hills, the mountains that peek up into the sky, piercing the heavens, as it were, and made you feel small like a blade of grass. Perhaps it was when you looked up into the heavens and you saw the heavenly stars above you, the countless galaxies spinning, as it were, above you, and you felt like... A little ant on a marble. When have you felt small? See, when we see all these things, we cannot but help feel our smallness in comparison to this greatness. Yet it's also true, isn't it, that sometimes we become familiar with this greatness. If you live by the ocean or the mountains, you quickly become accustomed to it. It quickly becomes normal. It, you get distracted by life because that's just there in the window frame. Even in the big city with all our lights and the smog of our pollution, we no longer see the greatness of the heavens above us. It's become normal. See, we too easily perhaps become familiar with greatness and therefore underestimate our smallness. I would suggest the same thing happens at Christmas season. At Christmas time, we celebrate the greatest story that's ever been told, that God himself comes to man to save man. God himself draws near with great cost to himself, gives his son who is born as one of us, and he gives himself ultimately to die at a cross for us. What wonder, what greatness should the Christmas story not overwhelm us with wonder and awe? Yet, let's be honest, we've become very familiar with it, haven't we? It's often become focused on trees and lights and gifts, and those things are wonderful and great. But we get distracted by them, don't we? We get distracted that we, so much so that we lose sight of the greatness, and the result is oftentimes we underestimate our place. We underestimate our smallness in comparison to the greatness we come and celebrate in this season. See, this tendency to familiarize greatness and overestimate our smallness reveals, I think, a perpetual problem of sinful mankind. And that is the problem where we love to exalt ourselves. 
We love to prioritize ourselves. And perhaps this is nowhere truer than in the Christmas season. In their book on the Incarnation, authors John Clark and Marcus Peters make this telling observation. They say, among the most basic and common assumptions of contemporary culture is that the nature, meaning, and goal of human existence is self-explanation. That one's self-understanding is the proper starting point and controlling principle for understanding all of reality. What they're saying is this, in our sinfulness, we underestimate our smallness and overestimate our greatness. We allow ourselves to take priority. It's our wants, our desires, where we become sensual and focal in the worship of self. And the point that they make in this book is that the incarnation confronts this straight on. The incarnation reminds us of our smallness and the greatness of our God. And and isn't that what we see in our passage? John starts his gospel with grandeur. He starts his gospel wanting to overwhelm us with wonder. Wanting us to, to feel our smallness before greatness. Now, now, to make us feel our smallness, to overwhelm us with greatness, he doesn't take us to the oceans, to the mountains and the stars. He takes us to the Word. As many of you know, Mark starts his gospel with Jesus' baptism in the Jordan. Matthew and Luke start their gospel with Jesus' birth in Bethlehem. Well, John starts his gospel with Jesus in eternity. He starts his gospel with the Christ behind Christmas, with the Christ that is behind every story. And it's a story that starts with the Word, the Word that should lead us to wonder and awe and grandeur. Uh, From verse 1 to 3, Sinclair Ferguson points out that there are four words that help us understand Jesus in this passage. I'm taking those four words and adopting them slightly. Uh, There are four words this morning that I want you to see, four words about the Word that will help us understand Jesus as the Word, four words about the Word that will help us see something of where, when, and where, what this Word is that will lead us to wonder at this Word. The first word we need to consider is the word eternity. If you had to ask the question, when was the word, you'd have to say the word always was. John 1, 1, in the beginning the word was. You might ask what the beginning of what. Well, if you know your Bible, you probably know that John is speaking here at the beginning of the world. He clearly wants us to think of Genesis 1 verse 1, which says, God in the beginning created the heavens and the earth. John is saying that in that beginning, this word already was. And realize this beginning is the beginning of all things. He says in verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Which means that before all created things, before this world, before the heavens and the stars, before the angels, before everything, this word was. 
that word Greek, that Greek word for was, many have, no, have pointed this out, is in the imperfect tense. It speaks of an ongoing, in, uninterrupted existence, which means that this word has experienced a continuous and timeless existence. And so if you had to ask the question, when was the word, you'd have to say, he always was. He is eternally, from the beginning to the end, he always was. If you could peer behind all of creation, if creation was an old videotape, you remember those things, and you could rewind all the way back to the beginning and go beyond the beginning, if you go beyond everything that is, you would find, John says, the word. That's why the early church argued against the heretics who said that there was a time when there the word was not. They argued and said, no, there was never a time when the word was not. Now, we struggle with this concept of eternity, don't we? We struggle with it because we're like grass. We're here today, but gone tomorrow. We see things end and begin all around us. But Jesus isn't like that. This word is from yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's always the same. He always is. Are you in awe yet? Second word to consider about the word is community. Community. If you had to ask the question, where was the word, then you'd have to say the word was with the Father in community. Look again at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God. No, not only is the word eternal, he's personal, and he's a person in community. A person in relationship, in, in perfect fellowship. Uh, that word for with in the Greek, the preposition in its current form, speaks of a face-to-face -face relationship. A, a living union. It's describing a person who is distinct from God, yet with God in a real, living relationship. We see a glimpse of this in verse 18. There we are told that Jesus is the only God who is at the Father's side, or as the, as the Greek would say, who is in the bosom of the Father. Between God and His Word, between the Father and the Son, there is real, deep, lasting intimacy and fellowship. Where was the Word? The Word was with God behind and before all things, there was Father and Son in perfect community. We, we long for that, don't we? We long for perfect community. We're going to have some community over the festive season, and you know it, I know it. It's not always easy and fun. There's sin, there's personalities, there's difficulties. We long for perfect, loving community. Well, if you peer back all time, you go back to the beginning, behind the beginning, there it is. Perfect, loving community between Father and Son who always live together. Again, should this not create awe and wonder? The third word about the word is this, and that is divinity. Right? You see this, if you had asked the question, what is the word? Not just when and where, but what is the word? We'd have to say he is fully divine. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. John here is making a, a qualitative statement of the word's nature. 
See, this eternal word who is in community with God is by nature God. In the Greek, John says that, that the word was God, theos, not merely God-like, which is a completely different Greek with theos, with an I. And the implication is this. The word doesn't just have some divine being. No, this word has the very divine being of God himself. All that which makes God, God, belongs to this word. Jesus explains this even in his gospel. Uh, John chapter 10, verse 30, Jesus says, I and the Father, right, distinct persons, are one, one being. In John 5, 26, for as the Father has life in himself, that is self-existent, independent life, so the Father has gone to the Son also to have that life. That's why Leon Morris could say, all that may be said about God may fitly be said about the Word. That's why the church has confessed from the Nicene Creed in 325, Jesus is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. So we see here that there is a word that exists in eternity. He lives in intimate community with the Father, and this word possesses full and perfect divinity. But if that isn't enough to make you wonder in awe and just be overwhelmed by the greatness of this word, consider the last word about the word, creativity. So far we've seen something of, uh, of the word's person. Now we see something of his work. From the beginning he has created all things. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. And what happened in the beginning? Well, creation, right? Verse 3, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And to make sure we get the point that this word is divine, that this word is the creator, he describes it both in positive and negative terms. Positively, all things were created by him. Negatively, nothing that was made was made without him. See, John is saying all things, all created things, the heavens, the stars, the creation that you see out there, you, all things were made through him and by him. Which implies that this word doesn't belong in the category of created things. If you had to take a board and divide it into, and one category is all the created things, and the other category, God, the uncreated God, you have to put him with God. See, John wants to remove any doubt of this word's nature. Not only does he call him God, but he describes him here with divine character, with divine works like creation. The Bible is clear. God alone is the uncreated creator. Isaiah 40, 28 says, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the earth, at the ends of the earth. See, Jesus is the eternal God who is with God, who creates. And he not only creates, he sustains, he keeps. Remember what Paul says in Colossians 1, 16 to 17, 
For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. As someone has said, perhaps irreverently, he's the glue that keeps everything together. Now, now think about that for a moment. The world you live in, the life you get to enjoy, the, the breath you're breathing right now, every moment, every delight was made by Christ and is sustained by Christ. Do you feel your smallness yet? Are you overwhelmed by his greatness yet? Dear friend, dear believer, when we are confronted by this word, by this Jesus, we ought to be overwhelmed. We ought to be awed by his greatness and humbled by our smallness. Here are four words about the word that ought to stagger us, that ought to overwhelm us, that ought to amaze us, and that ought to change our perception of everything. I want to use the rest of the time to consider that application. If this is truth, this is the word before whom we stand, the word that creates us, me and you, then how does that change it? How does it change ourselves? How does it change our view of God and the world and ourselves and Christmas? Well, let's walk through those quickly. The word changes how we see God. John Chapter 1 doesn't just teach us Christology, doesn't just teach us things about Jesus. It's teaching us more profoundly things about God. And what we see is that God is not some lonely being. What we learn is that God, within God, there is a multitude of persons as Father and Son, as we see later, Spirit. Now, to be sure, there's only one God, there's only one divine being. The scriptures are clear. Isaiah 44 verse 6 says, the Lord says, I'm the first, I'm the last. Besides me, there is no God. And you see that repeated throughout. Yet what we see in John 1 here is that within this one divine being of God, there's no loneliness. No, there's a plurality of persons in intimate fellowship and love and relationship. You see a few pointers of this in the Old Testament, shadows that point to this reality. In Genesis 1.26, when God creates man, what does he say? Let us make man in the image of angels, in our likeness, in the image of God. Even in Genesis 38, 11 to 30, we see the angel of the Lord come and he speaks for God and he's identified with God. Even in chapter 48, 15 and 16, he's honored alongside God. Or in Proverbs 8, where God's wisdom is described as a person besides God, alongside God. See, all these Old Testament pointers make sense when you get to the New Testament because here we see that God is one, yes, but within God there is multitudes of people, Father, Son, and Spirit, fullness of life. Doesn't our baptism attest to this? You're baptized in one name, you know that, right? One name, but three names, Father, Son, and Spirit. 
But, but here's my point. I want to, don't want to go into a lecture on the Trinity. Here's my point. We can't grasp this. Who here can grasp how God can be three in one, yet one in three? Who here can grasp the fact that God is one divine being, yet three divine persons? This is beyond our understanding, and that's the point. Would he be God if we fully understood him? Would he be worthy of our worship if we could grasp him? As someone has said, if God was small enough for us to understand, he wouldn't be big enough for us to worship. That's why John Wesley said, bring me a worm that can comprehend the man, and I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. And his point was, it's silliness. You can't do this. You cannot grasp the fullness of this God. We ought to be overwhelmed by this God. Just as we cannot carry the oceans in our arms, and just as we cannot place the mountains on our shoulders, and we cannot hold the stars in our hands, we cannot comprehend this God. But here is good news. You can know him. You can approach him. You can enjoy him. You cannot carry the, the oceans, but you can swim in its tides. You cannot uphold the mountains, but the mountains can uphold you. You cannot hold the stars, but you can behold their beauty. In the same way, you cannot fully comprehend God, but you can know him. You can enjoy him. You can know this God who is in a relationship because he's a God of relationship. How? Well, the answer is given us in verse 1. He is the word. Through the word of God. Why is Jesus called the word of God, by the way? And we, scholars debate this, and I won't get into that. The simplest explanation is this. He is from God, and he fully reveals God. He is the self-expression of God. Uh, think of your words, your words that you muster in your lungs and they come out of your throat and they are shaped by your tongue and your teeth and your lips. Your words come from you and they reveal you. I could look at you and know some things about you and I'd rather not want to say, but I could know some things. But when you open your mouth and you start talking and you start telling me about yourself, then I get to know you. In the same way with our God, we can look at creation. We can see his glory all about. We can know things about him. But until we come to his word, until we know his word in person, then and then only can we know him. Then and then only can we enjoy him in that relationship. So the only way to know God and enjoy God is through his word. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, the word of God ought to change our view of God. We're not dealing with a house cat. We're not dealing with a toy that you can play with and put away. We're dealing with a great and majestic God over all things who is unknowable yet noble, who is greater than us yet who invites us to him. The word should change our view of God, but also should change our view of the world. I love this quote by the Dutch theologian Herman Bavink. He points out that God is not some abstract, monadic, uh, solitary being, but he is a plenitude of life. He says God is an infinite fullness of blessed life. And we see that in John 1 verse 1. 
We see God lives in an eternity of community. When God he creates, and when He creates this world, He creates not out of need, but out of fullness. Not out of loneliness, but of blessedness. We realize this is one of the aspects that makes Christianity absolutely beautiful. Think about, very quickly, about the God that other religions worship. This won't be an other religion bashing point, but maybe I should a little, little bit. Think about the single God of Islam, or the singular God of Judaism, or the singular God of the Jehovah's Witness. Their God is a single person who has been all alone for all eternity. Now, a God who has always been alone cannot, by definition, be characterized by goodness and love. Why? Because to be good and to love requires another. It requires someone to be good too. It requires someone to love. Yet if these single-person gods don't have that, the single-person God has always been alone, then how can they be this? On the one hand, if they say they are a God of love and goodness, then their God needs to create in order to be that. But if he creates in order to be himself, he by definition doesn't, isn't God anymore. Or on the other hand, if they say their God is good and loving before creation, then that means that God has for all eternity been self-loving and self-seeking. Now think about that. Think about someone that you know that is self-seeking and self-loving. Are they great to be with? Every conversation, every action is all about themselves. To be in a relationship with that person is, is toxic. That's the modern word, right? It's It's horrible. Imagine that on a God scale. Imagine a God who is continually self-seeking, self-loving. And the good news is, beloved, that's not who our God is. The God of the Bible, the God of Christianity, the God who confesses faith in the Father, Son, and Spirit is a God full of life, of blessedness. Which means when he creates, he doesn't do so because he needs, he creates because he has. It means when he creates us, he creates not because he's some self-seeking God, but because he is self-giving God. Who creates us in his image to know him and enjoy him. What you must realize then, therefore, is that when God creates a world, he creates it to share himself, his love. His goodness. All creation exists. This world exists. You and I exist because He overflows with life, with goodness and love. I consider Psalm 145, verse 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all. And his mercy is over all that he has made. See, Jesus, as the eternal word in community with God, who creates all things as God, changes how we ought to see our world. A world that exists because of God's grace. Grace that we get to enjoy. Whether you're a believer or unbeliever. Uh, one theologian said this creation is grounded in the inner fullness of interterritorial 
life. This is not an impersonal world. No, this is a world created by a highly personal God who is good and gracious. And this should change our view of ourselves. If Jesus is the eternal word of God, who is God and who was God, was God and is with God, if he himself creates all things, including us out of the fullness of himself, then there are two implications for us. Firstly, if he is our creator who creates out of his fullness, then only his fullness will satisfy. Realize this, dear friends, you were made by Jesus, and you will remain unsatisfied until you find Jesus. As the psalmist says in Psalm 42, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, it's only He that can satisfy. The things of this world cannot fill your heart. It cannot bring you peace and joy and wholeness and rest. No, these things, like you, are created things. Money, possessions, pleasures. No, all of these things fail. Only the Creator who creates out of fullness can satisfy your aching and restless heart. He alone can satisfy. David understood the psalm seeking. David says, and he understands this in verse 2, he says, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. But there's a second implication. If he is our creator who creates out of his goodness, then all sin is a rejection of goodness. See, if creation is a movement of God's generosity and love, then sin is a repudiation of his benevolence. When we sin, we not only break God's law, but we reject and separate ourselves from the God who is good. Uh, listen to Jeremiah 5.25. Your iniquities have turned these things away. And what are these things? And your sins have kept good from you. Realize by sin, which by nature brings death, sin breaks us off from the blessed God. The sin that we think is delightful and joyful, that is good in some way, it actually robs you of goodness. She robs you of life. It separates you from the God of life. That's why it's wages of death. See, we were made in God's image to be good, and sin has robbed us of that goodness. If you look around you, you see that all around. You see brokenness. You see sin. You see suffering. You see trouble. Why is that? Because sin has shattered that image. Sin has brought that brokenness. It has separated us from our God. Which leads me to the last thing I want you to see. Jesus, as the word, changes our perception of God and the world and ourselves, but also to change our perception of Christmas. In John 1, we see the Christ behind Christmas. We see one who is eternally God and with God. We see one who creates out of the fullness of himself. In John 1, we behold the greatness of Jesus Christ as the Word of God. And before his greatness, dear friends, before his majesty, we stand in our smallness. 
Who are we to come before Him? Who are we to worship Him even? Who are we to even know Him? Sinners. Yet here's the wonder of the Christmas story. The awesome Word of God became flesh. The Creator entered into His creation. The great God became small. A baby in a manger. Born in Bethlehem so that He would die in Jerusalem. Die in a bloody tree for sinners. Tree that He made. uh, uh, People that He made. Why? To redeem those who have been lost by sin. In Him we have redemption, Paul says, through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to His grace. He, he redeems us, and not only does He redeem us, He recreates us. He, he recreates what's been broken by the fall. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. Who, who better to, to remake you, to heal you, and the one who made you in his image. And all he does, he redeem and recreate, he restores us to the Father. He restores us to God. Once we were alienated from God, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, but he is now in his body of death on the tree of Calvary, by his death, presented us holy and blameless before the Father. See, here's the wonder of Christmas. The great God became small to redeem and recreate and restore broken, fallen sinners. Have you been redeemed this morning, dear friend? Have you been recreated in His image? Have you been restored to your God? If if you haven't, turn to Him today. Turn to him today. Perhaps you're not a Christian here today. Let me encourage you to come with faith to him, to cling to him. Let go of your sin. Let go of your brokenness. Come to the God who speaks. Come to his word, and you will find the one for whom you have been made for. His greatness is good. And let it overwhelm you. Let it envelop you. But come to him. Believe upon him. If you have turned to him, if you perhaps you're a Christian, but you're tired, you're weary from a long year of work, well, let me encourage you, come to him still. Come with awe and come with wonder. Come with worship. Come to the one who knows your smallness, who's experienced your smallness, who's able to lift you up and encourage you, who's able to show you himself. And make you more like himself. Come to him and rest and find comfort again in him. Trust in the one who is greater than us, but who is for us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for this passage of Scripture. We want to thank you that, in a sense, we really struggle to understand the concepts of your word, your eternally begotten Son made known to us here. We struggle to wrap our heads around it and conceptualize it, and we pray that you'd give us the faith to to just rest in awe at this revelation, to rest in awe of who you are, 
to come before you even this morning with renewed faith to believe upon you, to, to love you, to trust you, to know that you are this great and marvelous and majestic God, but one who can be known through your word, through your son. And we pray that as we consider these things, even in the hours and week ahead, we pray that they would cause us to change the way we see life, to see you with renewed eyes, with fearful and awe-inspired eyes, to see our world as a display and a movement of your grace and goodness, to see constantly our, our, our need for you to satisfy us, our need for your grace, and to see again as we enter into this Christmas season the beauty and wonder of Christ in the manger, the great God who becomes small. Oh, dear Lord, help us, lead us into your ways, into your truth, into deeper relationship and fellowship with you, even this morning. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.